This is Wally Knox. Welcome to the Political Conversation. Today I'm going to be talking with Brad DeLong, who's a professor of economics at Berkeley and with an extraordinary bio that includes being Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy from 1993 to 1995 during the Clinton administration. Uh, the reason I'm interviewing him, though, is because he's the author of Slouching Towards Utopia, just published and rapidly becoming not just a necessary read on economic history, but a kind of touchstone that has to be dealt with on every aspect of economic history since, are you ready for this, 1870. Simply, if you care about our economy and where it's going, I highly recommend you get yourself a copy. With with Brad, I want to review the highlights of his book and the key concepts he wanted to bring forward there. But there are two other issues that I wanted to bring forward. One is literally seeking his advice on what do we do about the decline of the American middle class and where do Brad DeLong's ideas fit into the general discussion of what is an agenda to solve the middle class problem in America. And the second thing I want to discuss with Brad is uh, the status of economic theory, macroeconomic theory today. We've gone through so much turmoil in the past few years. The uh, massive financial collapse of 2007, 8, 9, the Great Recession of 2009, 2010, and now a very significant inflation period. Why is this occurring to us? Supposedly, the theorists in the economy uh, departments uh, of the government knew what they were doing. Why is this happening? Um, what, what is the status of economic theory today? So it's going to be a broad-ranging discussion, and I'm glad to get into it. Brad DeLong, welcome to The Political Conversation. Um, thank you very, very much for inviting me. Um, I'd like to begin in an odd way, and that is to uh, discuss two terms that, in my conversations with smart, engaged uh, critically intelligent friends of mine, I, over and over, it seemed to me that their grasp of some simple economic terms um, wasn't as strong as it should be. And the, the two terms I'm thinking of are productivity, productivity growth, and macroeconomics. And since this conversation is going to revolve around um, those concepts, I thought it'd be good to just ask you to give your own take on a straightforward definition of those terms. Well, macroeconomics is easiest. It's that part of economics that isn't, you know, just supply and demand. You know, it's that part of economics that consists of the of either tautness and high activity or low activity and massive unemployment. Productivity um at the easiest level, productivity is simply you know, how much is produced in total divided by how many workers you have and how many hours they worked. And it gets more subtle and sophisticated from there as you try to figure out whether when you count up how much is produced, do you, are the markets prices the prices you really want to use to count them? Or do you really want to use some other and somewhat different set of prices in order to assess how much what we produce is really worth in some sense? And one of the key concepts is, does productivity increase or not? Um, well, so far since 1870 worldwide, on average, it has and it has by a lot. Before 1870, it's really questionable. That is, technology improved, yes, but technology improved more very slowly. And you know, increases in how much we knew about how to 
manipulate nature and productively and cooperatively organize humans. Um, before 1870, those were overwhelmingly offset by the fact that productivity growth led to there being more people in the world, which meant to there being smaller farm sizes. And, you know, the smaller average farm size pretty much balanced out better technology so that how much the average person could produce was more or less unchanged. In 1870, relative, say, to the days when Gilgamesh was king of Uruk, two-thirds god and one-third man. And you see, after 1870, some very clear things creating the takeoff. You know, it's really, really remarkable, right, that after 1870, humanity's technological competence doubles every 30 years. Um, but it doubles in a very uneven way. It's, you know, the process of creative destruction, as Joseph Schumpeter um, said. You know, lots of wealth created by the increased human capability to do new productive things, but also entire, you know, industries, occupations, livelihoods, and communities um, simply blown away and abolished you know, by the market as they no longer pass the market's profitability test. But the in some uh, after 1870, um, lots of growth and uh, lots of people entering what became in America the middle class. Yes, yes. Or so much so that, you know, our our working class now in America is richer than our upper middle class was back in the days of the Great Depression or before. Um, and, you know, say in the world as a whole, you know, maybe only 5% of the world today is as poor as the as 75% of humanity was back in 1870. But 1870 is is not the the year you look to to get really excited about. Your book has a, a section entitled 30 Glorious Years of Social Democracy and that sort of ecstatic ecstatic, you know, ecstatic chapter title pretty much says your your, your attitude toward what was going on there. Um, yes. Starting in 1870, humanity really began to figure out how to solve the problem you know, of baking a sufficiently large economic pie so that we could at least think that people could or that someday people in general would be able to have enough. You know, but baking a sufficiently large economic pie, you know, that's not all we want to do. Um, we also need to slice the pie. We also need to taste the pie. We also need to equitably or semi-equitably distribute what we produce. And you know, we also need to utilize it properly. Um, that is to use our wealth in and live wisely and well so that people feel safe and secure and live lives in which they're healthy and happy. And much of the story since 1870 is, you know, every generation, a technological industrial revolution. Um, every generation, our ability to bake a sufficiently large economic pie doubling. But the problems of slicing and tasting, the problems of distribution and utilization, well, they continue to flummox us and they flummox us pretty much completely. So here's what I wanted to just test on on your discussion of, of social democracy. You see the period uh, from Franklin Roosevelt, the, the end of World War II, through Richard Nixon, as as you describe those 30 glorious years. Now, those are that's Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and and Richard Nixon. Um, that's that's a collection of American presidents um, that uh, not you know a lot of folks would look at. And see very significant differences between each of them, even in in economic issues. But you see you see them fitting into a common era with a common theme. A common era with a common theme, and that we're not just racing technology forward. Yeah, you know, we're not just figuring out how to bake a sufficiently large economic pie. But we are actually making significant progress in distribution and utilization as well. Um, from the very depths of the Great Depression in March 1933, when FDR gets inaugurated, you know, I would say up until the late 1970s, up until the presidency of Jimmy Carter, when then when, when historian Gary Gersel calls the New Deal order, um, it kind of starts to dissolve into you know recriminations and ideological anger. Um, 
But yes, otherwise, from FDR through, I would say, through Gerald Ford, it's the case that there is um, a very broad acceptance within America and elsewhere that significant progress is being made, not just in technology, but in civilization as well. Uh, perhaps this is a good time to stop and give a plug to Gary Gerstel's book by uh, by name, and I'm blanking on his book, which has been enthusiastically received. Yes, the book is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. It is an absolutely wonderful book. And it brings me to my next topic, which is you're, you have a chapter that says the 30 glorious years of, of a social democracy came to an end. Um, and uh, at the a new order came into existence, the neoliberal order, uh, bookended by two remarkable economic disasters, a massive inflation in the 1970s, which which gave birth probably to that order, and the massive recession of 2008-2009, which discredited that order, and here we are uh, going to wrestle with what will come now. Neoliberal is a term that gets thrown around a lot. How do you, how do you define that? Um, well, it's almost certainly a bad word for the concept, um, because it's a word that comes with many definitions. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, it's a word that's used you know, say as a weapon to deny that there's any difference between say Bill Clinton on the one hand and Ronald Reagan on the other and Augusto Pinochet you know on the third um, all the way to saying it's simply common sense um, that you know bureaucracies are rigid and the manual of the bureaucracy can only covers one third of the possible cases and central planning is clueless because the head of any organization has little idea what's actually going on down at the bottom of the organization. And so regularly issues orders that must be evaded or lots of time need to be explained, need to be spent explaining why it doesn't make any sense or need to be carried out with substantially counterproductive consequences. And so as a result, you should use market mechanisms wherever you can to push you know, decision making out to the periphery of society where people actually know what's going on. That is that a market system is a very good way to crowdsource solutions to problems. And, you know, between those two poles of saying that Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and Augusto Pinochet are all kind of the same as leaders on the one hand and saying Obviously, you shouldn't use you know, bureaucracies um, kind of you could you shouldn't use um, sluggish bureaucracies or brutal authorities where you can actually crowdsource solutions and give people freedom. Somewhere between there is the ideas, the thing called neoliberalism. Um, it's a reaction, I think, primarily to the inflation of the 1970s, to the fact that the inflation of the 1970s demonstrated to many people's satisfaction that the New Deal order, politicians running things, you know, no longer understood how to actually manage the society. And so there needed to be lots of changes made. It's a reaction to a perceived view that the New Deal order was too bureaucratic insufficiently you know insufficiently entrepreneurial and excessively leveling sketch for us if you would and give us the most pertinent details of what the heck it felt like to be living through the 1970s inflationary era um well you know you you made a budget and you'd look at your income and you'd take your income and then you'd start going around to the stores and you'd find that you know, not all prices, but some prices. And on average, prices were five, six, seven, in some years, even 10% higher than you had been expecting, than you thought prices ought to be. And so you would feel that you were cheated, that you'd made these plans for what you were going to do with your income. And all of a sudden, the economy was being mismanaged in such a way that kind of five or 10% of what you thought you could buy was being chiseled away from you. 
and being chiseled away from you by some process you know that you didn't understand and the same thing was going on to your savings the same thing was going on to your savings unless you were lucky enough to have hit upon a particular asset class that was benefiting from inflation my parents had a big house in suburban washington dc which boomed enormously while how much they owed on their mortgage you know they the amount of resources they had to pay to get that mortgage was eaten away because the mortgage was in dollars and the dollar was all of a sudden worth a lot less. There was the fact that society was somehow cheating you. And there was also the fact that inflation rubbed everyone's nose into the idea that you got ahead in society by being lucky and perhaps by being unscrupulous enough to figure out when to jump first into a particular unfair opportunity that inflation had opened up. And that was a source of, you know, great, great electoral discontent. Um, you see this in a little way in the past two years when we've had a very small cousin of the 1970s inflation. Um, yet still, it makes everyone extremely uneasy um, when they find that the whatever budget they had been planning for this month, that all of a sudden it doesn't really work because prices are 5% higher than they thought they were. And one of the distinctive uh, features of inflation is it literally ends up touching everyone in the society. So so there's a, a, a strangely broad consensus about how difficult the situation is. Yes, that in a depression, maybe an extra one in 20 people loses their job and has a horrible time finding a new one. So that, that, that really lays a background for how unsettling uh, the 1970s inflation was to the political order. And, and it really, for me, gives rise to an explanation of why some radically different solution would suddenly become appealing. But beyond that, there were further problems. Productivity began to collapse after the mid-1970s. Uh, and you deal you deal with that in, in your book as well. Yeah, I mean, Paul Krugman thinks that if only the inflation of the 1970s had been well handled, that, you know, we wouldn't have made the neoliberal turn. You wouldn't have seen, you know, the rise of the neoliberal order um, in Western Europe and the United States. You wouldn't have seen the opportunity for Thatcher and for Reagan and then for their imitators to kind of win elections and gain power. Um. I'm not at all so sure, right? There were, um, let's say if you want to go back into the history of Apple Computer, right? One of its early impressive moments was a commercial that Apple ran in the 1984 Super Bowl, announcing oh. <laughs> the launch of the very first Macintosh. I remember it vividly. Um, and the idea, yeah, the idea behind the Macintosh, the idea that Steve Jobs was then selling, um, was that you needed to become an entrepreneurial person in the sense that you needed to have control over information to understand what's what, that you really needed a personal computer um, so that you didn't become someone who was living a gray, boring, routinized job in which some big corporation or government that had more knowledge than you did simply made you get in line and do what you were supposed to do without understanding what was going on um, and simply fed you whatever information it thought you needed to know. And I went out very much a descendant of descendant of the people who got their draft cards, which had on them the IBM legend, do not fold, spindle or mutilate. <laughs> um, and then in turn burned or folded, spindled and mutilated um, their draft card. Um, I went right out and bought myself a 1984 Macintosh. And um, it's it's in my attic, <laughs> perfectly preserved. And uh, I will, I will, I will will that to my children, definitely. So here we are in the, in the 1970s. We've gone through an era of enormous economic growth in the the era of social democracy, but things have gotten off the tracks. We have a massive inflation discrediting 
everything it comes in contact with. Um, and it was brought under control by one of the most unlikely people um, you could possibly imagine, Paul Volcker. Walk us through how that was done. And would you please, because this is another th point where I think we can use this conversation to explain with some care how the economic adjustments that the Fed makes are supposed to make sense. Because quite frankly, most of us hear the reports and haven't a clue as to why this is supposed to work. All right. Well, you know, let's start in the second half of the 1960s, right, when Lyndon Johnson is worried about the people of South Vietnam who he thinks are on the point of falling under the thrall of an odious North Vietnamese communist regime. You know, and it was indeed a pretty odious regime, right? How many people actually wind up fleeing Vietnam after the North Vietnamese con finally conquered it in 1975? You know, one million or two million people kind of desperate to get out. Um, and he's also worried about being attacked as a Democrat, as being soft on communism from Republicans. So Lyndon Johnson decides to fight the Vietnamese War, which winds up sending 500,000 American soldiers, plus all their equipment, um, to the far side of the Pacific. Myself included. Yes. Okay. Um, but he also, you know, thinks this will make him politically unpopular enough. And so he doesn't want to do what his economic advisors tell him, which is that if you're going to fight a war, if you're going to have the government spend all this money on war fighting, you need to raise taxes. You know, so he doesn't raise taxes. Um, the result of which is the government is now spending a lot of money trying to grab a lot of resources to fight the war. But consumers are still spending what they were spending before. So there are now more dollars being spent in America in the late 1960s than there are actually goods being produced. What's the consequence? Um, the consequence is inflation. You know, that you know, $102 chasing $100 worth of goods, well, the average price of the goods is going to rise. Johnson eventually imposes a 10% income tax surtax, but it's too late. And Richard Nixon comes into office in 1969 with, you know, a inflation problem, say, not as big as the one we have now, but about half as big. Say. Um, and his more austere economic advisors say, you know, um, let's cut back on the federal budget. Um, let's raise taxes. Let's have the Federal Reserve raise interest rates. You know, by raising interest rates, we'll make it unprofitable to build houses or to try to move into a bigger house. And that will cool off the construction sector. And then we'll have $100 worth of um, spending with $100 worth of goods. Um, Nixon thinks about doing that decides he'd rather impose wage and price controls in order to convince people that inflation is not the rule but the exception, um, appoints his longtime friend Arthur Burns to chair the Federal Reserve. Arthur Burns worries that if he raises interest rates in order to curb housing construction, that Congress will be mad at him and take the Federal Reserve's independence away. Arthur Burns also wants to see his friend and is for a longtime friend, President Richard Nixon, elected and thinks having a recession during the election year is a bad thing. Um, the result of all of this is that 1973 comes along. And at that point, you have an Arab-Israeli war. You have a large oil embargo on the United States and on the Netherlands because the Saudis and others are pissed at how much military equipment the United States shipped to Israel in order to give it an advantage in that war. And then the Association of Arab Oil Exporting Countries, uh, the Organization of Arab Exporting Oil Exporting Countries, wakes up to how much market power they have. And how they can raise the price of oil from $3 a barrel to $10 a barrel and make it stick. And all of a sudden, you have the a bigger inflation problem than we have today. You have inflation at about 
10%, um, just as the economy gets told by higher oil prices that it massively needs to become more energy efficient. And you get the largest recession of the post-World War II period to that point. And it's then that Nixon resigns rather than facing impeachment. And the problem with managing the recession and the inflation is then handed off to Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and the people they choose to run the Federal Reserve. You know, and they muff it. Um, they muff the problem for the next six years or so. Until finally, Paul Volcker gets appointed to be chairman of the Federal Reserve. And at that point, the inflation problem is very much entrenched, you know, because inflation has been going on for a decade, has been rising slowly. So everyone, when they do their planning for next year, when they think about how much a big a wage increase they should ask for or what they should do with their prices, thinks I got to take into account the fact that inflation this next year is going to be what inflation this year was, plus one or two percentage points more. And it's at this point that Volcker decides the only thing I can do is raise interest rates so high that it will push housing construction and exports down so low that unemployment will be sufficiently high and demand will be sufficiently slack that no worker will think of daring to ask for a raise. Volcker that no was business that will dare to think of even raising its prices. Yeah, that in fact, the... unions will go back to companies and say, you know, this wage increase we agreed we'd get this year, we don't want it. We want you to keep more of our people at work rather than give us the wage increase and then fire some of our members. So Volcker was heading the Federal Reserve at that point, having been appointed by Jimmy Carter, uh, who lifted him out of the New York Reserve Bank. So it worked. It worked. Um, it kept me in academia because when I graduated in June of 1982 from college, I looked around and the unemployment rate was 11 percent. Um, I think it was actually 13 percent in Massachusetts where I was. And, you know, I looked at that and said, I don't want to go out in this job market I want to get a master's degree. And so I stayed in school. I got a master's degree. I then stayed. I got a PhD. I then stayed ever since. You know, I'm kind of the person who never left college except for a couple of years working for the U.S. Treasury. Yeah. <laughs> well, we thank uh, we thank Paul for that. Um, so th the the big point is that uh, the era of social democracy came to an end with a massive inflation that was only controlled by the head of the Federal Reserve driving the economy into a stunning recession. And instead of the recession discrediting what the Fed had done, the consensus that emerged discredited further discredited the era of social democracy is that is that overstating the strangeness it is, of the political it is. calculus the consensus came to be that you know by getting inflation under control so people were no longer thinking they were being cheated even more by the system um paul volcker had done a wonderful thing and the fact that he had to do this wonderful thing was because the social democratic politicians, the politicians of the New Deal order, you know, had created a society in which people as a whole expected more um, than they made, um, thought in which it handed out more tickets than there were seats on the roller coaster. Um, and yes, this was a very unpleasant three years, the three years of the Volcker deflation, but the fact that you had to do it was precisely because social democracy had been too permissive and had not you know, been obedient enough to the requirements of actually running a, running a functioning economy. So the culmination of the, that sequence of events is the election in 1980 of Ronald Reagan as president of the United States. The, clearly, you could argue that Carter was uh, an exemplar of neoliberalism, but clearly Ronald Reagan espoused the, the concepts that we're talking about. Well, you know, I mean, the, the general view that, you know, the social democracy was 
you know, too undisciplined, too bureaucratic, um, too prone to rent seeking that people who manage to get themselves into politically favored positions then get to grab a lot more than their share. Um, you know, Carter was very sympathetic to that. You know, that is um, that he, after all, was the one who appointed Paul Volcker. And also, you know, one of his big initiatives was that we need to introduce more competition to trucking and airlines because the Teamsters Union and the airline pilots unions are getting away, are getting away with a great deal um, by essentially being, you know, um, you know, regulated monopolists and overcharging America for airplane flights and for trucking services. Um, so Carter was kind of a proto-neoliberal, but Reagan was the real thing. So the, but there's a whole element of what became neoliberal orthodoxy that isn't really visible at this point, and that's globalization. Um, the uh, Reagan uh, initiates the neoliberal uh, era, but largely uh, on a domestic basis. Um, it's in a, a later president, um, I, you know, uh, Bill Clinton, who really begins to espouse one of the central concepts, and that is that a global economy will lift all boats, including the boats in the United States of America. Uh, and I find that interesting for this reason. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, um, you've been listening to the podcast. And on the podcast, we've had Danny Roderick recently, who talked about, who was interested in not so much providing specific proposals economically, but articulating a broad overview, paradigms. And one of the points Danny made that I thought was most striking was that a paradigm is thoroughly established when people who are ostensibly opposed to the paradigm see the world through its lens. And Bill Clinton's embrace of globalization, enthusiastic backing of treaties, uh, enthusiastic welcoming of China into the World Trade Organization fits that very directly. Yes, as does Dwight Eisenhower's saying, you know, that I'm much more conservative than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, but the New Deal order is there, is working. I will be a very good steward of it. I will not attempt to undo it. You know, so Bill Clinton was, you know, the age of big government um, is over. And do remember, Bill Clinton had been um, governor of Arkansas. Right. And Arkansas is prosperous or not, depending on whether, you know, Arkansas's manufacturing and agricultural businesses are able to sell to the world, you know, or not. That as a poor state, it's not going to be able to generate demand for all it produces within itself, and it needs lots of things from outside. Um, and so just as one of the roles of governor of Arkansas in the 1980s, um, was essentially to be a kind of an export agent for Tyson chicken. Um, so Bill Clinton moved, thought he was in this, thought that, or very gladly took up that same role as president of the United States. You know, that we are vastly more prosperous when we are part of a global economy um, and are eager to compete by selling other people our exports than when we try to close ourselves off um, for our local advantage. So the the neoliberal era in that we're discussing is in full swing in the presidency of, of Bill Clinton, but it it does not achieve the the results it promised. You you sketched the results it it was supposed to achieve lots of exports, lots of money, lots of jobs. We would participate in the global economy. Um, briefly sketch for us the, what you see as the failures of the neoliberal project. Well, you know, I'd say that it seemed to be going along fine for a while, at least until 2000, right? That the budget was in surplus, that there was lots of investment in America. Um, there was the high tech boom. There was faster real wage growth from 1995 to 2000 than had been seen since before 1973. Um, 
But, you know, then um, Al Gore loses the presidency to George W. Bush um, by the fact, the reason that five Supreme Court justices um, think that since they can't figure out who actually won Florida, then they like George W. Bush more than they like Al Gore. Um, the budget surpluses vanish as all, say, reductions in federal spending that Bill Clinton had pushed forward to balance the budget are then used to finance another round of tax cuts for the rich. Um, the United States has a very difficult time, not so much in the short run as in the long run, at finding things for people who would otherwise have been blue-collar factory workers to do. As China becomes online as a manufacturing export power in the world. And then come 2007, it's very clear that the neoliberal politicians have forgotten completely that financial markets are regulated for a reason. And then come 2010, it becomes very, very clear that neoliberal politicians have forgotten what was one of the principal lessons of the New Deal order. Um, which is that it is the business of government to maintain full employment or to return to full employment as fast as possible, as soon as anything, as soon as they can after anything happens to create a recession. And so, you know, come 2010, you know, just as Bill Clinton had said the age of big government is over, you know, Barack Obama stands up in his State of the Union address. And instead of saying we need to get back to full employment, um, the unemployment rate's still 10%. The private sector has sat down and is no longer spending to put people to work. The government needs to pony up. The government needs to stand up and spend to put people to work, the Americans who need jobs. Instead, Barack Obama stands up and said, you know, Americans have had to tighten their belts over the past year. The federal government needs to tighten its belt, too. And, you know, I will veto anything that the House and Senate passes that I think is not, you know, favorable to deficit reduction. And I must say, to issue a veto threat to Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, to the Speaker and the Majority Leader of the Senate of your own party, is one hell of a way to create internal party comedy. And also a completely ineffective way of fighting a situation which the economy is still in a deep depression. You know, um, but you know, as Danny said, you know, the idea was hegemonic um, that, as Margaret Thatcher used to say, that there really is no alternative than to recognize that the market has a logic of its own to try to figure out what the logic of the market economy is and then to go with it rather than try to modify it or to control it. So in your book, you strongly recommend um, what you've been discussing, and that is that the Obama administration should not have uh, limited its expenditures in the way it did. But I mean, bluntly, um, the first uh, major economic act of Obama was about an $800 billion uh, a deficit. We had a debate between Romer and, and Larry Summers within the Obama administration about the size of it. <clears throat> and my understanding is everyone says that the ultimate decision there was a political one that they simply couldn't ask for a trillion dollar deficit in the year that they were they were dealing with um what was what you know bluntly um what was what were the alternatives then yeah i'd say it's a little bit more subtle right that that christy romer says we really need 1.8 billion to get the economy back to full employment um, and Larry Summers says the political people will react extremely negatively to anything more than 1.8 billion. Why do we say 900 billion will get us halfway back and then wait for Obama and others to ask, well, shouldn't we go all the way back? Um, and apparently they never did. Um, they already thought that they really needed the approval of David Brooks. And, you know, David Brooks was hostile. Um, to the idea of doing 
even 800 billion. One of the big points uh, you make in the book is that the the Great Recession that followed the financial catastrophes of 2007-2008 was not inevitable. Um, And I'm leaping from that. I'm I'm doing a stretch here. But reading your book, um, I came away with the feeling that that's one of the fundamental messages you wanted to send for a wider range of history and for a wider range of issues that supposedly inevitable economic consequences just aren't. Um, they're very largely a matter of decisions, um, and there are things you can do. There are things we can do something about. Yes. I mean, that if you want to still stay in the baking, slicing, tasting metaphorical space, um, that yes, the market economy is a wonderful thing for, you know, crowdsourcing, figuring out how to produce more, how to enlarge the pie. But there are lots of other things that are needed to enlarge the pie as well. Um, And then the market economy is guaranteed not to help you distribute or utilize um, the pie. You know, the market economy will give social power to those who are lucky enough to be the currently rich. Um, And that won't be what you want distribution to be. And that is unlikely to be what you want utilization to be. So at this point in our conversation, I'd like to lift us away from a a detailed recitation of the history of the events and, and pose to you the issue that leaps out to me. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that that's all about America's middle class and and what has happened to the middle class since the 70s uh we've touched on that um i've had conversations with three different people uh david otter uh deron asimoglu and danny roderick um, of mit and uh, the jfk school at harvard um, all of whom have sketched different aspects of a response to the question, how do we rebuild the middle class? Danny giving a very intellectual overview, uh, constructing a paradigm. Uh, Duran focusing on uh, tax issues and the effect that has. Um, and David Otter leading a whole effort at MIT to sketch what work of the future may look like. Um, But reflecting back on those three conversations, none of those conversations turned on macroeconomics or macroeconomic theory. Um, They are all sketching a whole class and range of feasible political projects um, that are far away, far afield from the whole question of Uh, What's the Federal Reserve doing this week with regard to interest rates and far afield from the question of uh, do we uh, what is the appropriate size of a federal deficit, if any? Um, And and here I found myself interviewing you. And the appropriate question to me was this. Where does macroeconomics fit in uh, in the project of rebuilding the middle class? I would think Danny, David, and Daron, um, that they should go back and they should read chapter 24 of Keynes's general theory, because chapter 24 is all about how all these problems become much, much easier if you focus first on the macroeconomic issue of obtaining full employment, you know? You're worried about the state of the middle class. You're worried that this middle class doesn't have sufficient social power, doesn't have the ability to get what it wants and it needs what its share of society's resources are. Um, Well, you know, in a full employment economy, um, it won't be the case that the labor of the middle class is something of no account. 
You know, it won't be the case that the middle class will own very little in the form of property in a market economy in which the only rights that it recognizes are property rights. But instead, it will be the case that the labor of the middle class and of the working class, too, are things of substantial value, and they'll be able to use that bargaining power in order to shift the distribution of good things significantly in their favor. Um, if you take full employment and the maintenance, the attainment and maintenance of full employment as your first goal and the you know, arranging of the financial deck chairs and superstructure around that, you know, as your second goal, um, that that will be a big plus. And in addition, um, and in addition, a full employment economy will be a low interest rate economy. And in a low interest rate economy, you know, your plutocrats, they won't be getting a high rate of return on their savings, on their wealth. If plutocrats then want to you know, exercise their social power to actually get things done, they'll have to spend down their capital. And as they spend down their capital, they'll cease to be plutocrats. And so both the problems of insufficient social power on the part of the middle and the working class and the problem of excessive social power on the part of the rich and the super rich Solving those is both made much, 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 much easier if you have an economy that takes a macro economy in which policy is aimed first at full employment, um, rather than a macro economy in which you say the market has a logic of its own. You know, if the market wants there to be unemployment right now, there must be some reason for it. And that creates a context in which the specific proposals of uh, David and Danny uh, and um, Deron uh, can play out to greater effect um, and um, and work their and work their magic. Um, all right. So then here's the question I come to, and it's a question which you actually phrased very strongly in a recent Project Syndicate essay. That was a review of Alan Blinder's new book, which is a history of uh, monetary and fiscal history of the United States since the 60s. And uh, rather than give it away, tell me what his big point was and, and, and lay out for me your reaction to that. Well, um, I think the big point of Alan Blinder's history, you know, monetary and fiscal history of the United States since 1961 is really that it's very hard, um, that it's very hard to find um, a specific big point um, in here, that instead of history having a direction or instead of there being some particular process um, in which we learn stuff and manage the economy better and better, um, instead, there are, as he puts it, you know, wheels, um, wheels within wheels, that the problem of monetary fiscal policy is one of recurrent, you know, is one of recurrent whack-a-mole in some sense. Um, Blinder's phrase is wheels within wheels spinning endlessly in time of space with certain themes waxing and waiting. Um, with the underlying story driven by historical contingency. And, you know, with economic theory, um, you know, with economic theory, at least currently fashionable theory, is not very useful because it's going to be pushing in the wrong direction. You know, that in academia, economic theory, macroeconomic theory is pushed toward making the reputations of theorists with new ideas. And so people will grab for the new and the shiny, even if it is not, um, in fact, very strongly empirically based. And when you consider the fact that the structure of the macro economy is changing out from under you, even if a doctrine was well based, was well empirically based, applied to the last generation, the economy's structure will have shifted by enough that it probably won't work um, for the next generation. And then on the other hand, you know, I mean, theory is often corrupted by ideology um, in one sense or another. And if you're going to rely on theory, you better hope that the adulteration is oregano 
rather than something like peyote. You know, and an awful lot of the time, you know, the adulterant really has been peyote. Um, like, you know, I'm remembering the Trump tax cut of the past decade of the 2017-2018. Yeah, right. And, you know, people, um, people talking about how this was going to be wonderful. And actually, as best as we can, it was zero that this did indeed give um, companies incentives to transfer funds notionally from abroad back to the United States. But practically every dollar transferred back to the United States was then used to buy back stock with nothing used to actually boost the share of investment in America. Um, and so I looked at the at, say, um, Stanford professor Michael Boskett. Um, one of those who was most strident in their declarations that this was going to be an enormous boost to American economic growth. Um, I was looking at what he was writing last in October. You know, well, what he was writing was not about how great the Trump tax cut that he had boosted had been in boosting investment in America. Instead, it was about how horrible it was that Joe Biden's administration had lost control over the southern border and we were being flooded with illegal immigrants. So, but here's the here's the the hard question that, that leaps out as me. So here I am, bluntly, I'm an ordinary citizen. Uh, I took an economics course about a million years ago in college, um, and retained a little bit of it, uh, and am conversant and read the papers and 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 follow the debates. But I'm about as ordinary a citizen as you can get. In a situation in which the theorists themselves are struggling to come up with something that can explain what's going on and can be of any practical use in deciding what the Fed should do or what the budgetary policy, what's an ordinary citizen to do and who is an ordinary citizen to believe? I would say as to who to believe. Um Believe people who have a good track record at forecasting the past, and especially people who will be willing to admit when they've made mistakes and publicly try to say why they think, you know, they made those particular mistakes, you know, rather than people who are busily spend their time changing the subject. Um, Sounds like you, we've eliminated every elected official in the United well, States well, of America, pretty, pretty much. much. Pretty yeah. much, pretty much, that they're very loath to admit um, that they had managed, that they've managed, that they ever got anything, um, that they ever got anything wrong, you know, in the past. Um, which means you have to aim for kind of... Um, Experts who really, really, really are not that focused on getting a good government job and on experts who really do have a sense of humility about how little they know and about how wrong you know, they have been in the past. And that includes cases in which they have been right in the past, but in which they have been right for the wrong reasons in which they've been in which their prediction has been rescued by some factor that they did not consider. Other than that, it's really, really hard because we have an extraordinary complex society. You know, we have eight billion people and using technologies that we have little experience with of enormous power and production and trying to get us all on the same page, pulling in the same direction, figuring out how to cooperate rather than sending, spending our time, our energy and our wealth, sending killer robots um, to fly over the skies of place, blowing things up and killing people. Um, it really, really is very hard. And I am not surprised if ordinary people you know, spend a lot of their time despairing. Beware people who say that the answers are very, very simple, that we are things are not ideal because we have failed to do one thing or because we've been blocked by one particular narrow group of bad guys. Um, I think we've come to a good stopping point. It's a, it's a difficult stopping point, and um, it's one I think I'll be wrestling with on the, 
on the podcast a bit. How do we how do we find our way forward in a way that can actually be explained to people in the country? Right. Well, I'd say Daron, um, David, and Danny um, are both are all not very interested in government jobs. Um, right. Are trying their hardest and are extremely curious about what they've gone wrong in the past and how to change their thinking so they don't get it wrong in the future. Yeah, I, I have enormous regard for them and for you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very, very much. Well, that was refreshing. Um, a conversation with one of the most learned and uh, distinguished economists in the country who ended the discussion urging modesty about um, uh, how much powerful theories can achieve and how careful you and I, the ordinary citizens who live our lives and hear the commentary floating around our ears, and are puzzled much of the time about what the heck it all means. Um, who do we believe? And Brad's advice was very simple. Uh, believe the folks who have some sense of modesty and believe the folks who have some track record on getting their predictions about the future right. That Those are very stringent <laughs> requirements. <laughs> Stop to think about it. Uh, modesty, uh, modesty from the folks who are elected, whether Democrat or Republican, uh, is a rare, rare thing to find. And as far as the track records on getting predictions right, um, we've been fluctuating from economic growth to economic catastrophe and back again in rapid secession for years now, all of which seems to be uh, a key element in the decline of the middle class. Um, let's sort of put that in very clear perspective. The decline of the middle class is not a recent event that could be attributed to one or another short-term uh, thing that went wrong. The middle class has been in decline in our country since the mid-1970s mid 1970s half a century of decline this is an economic catastrophe that makes the great depression look more striking uh more terrifying perhaps because of the suddenness of the depression and the depth of the depression but far more significant than the great depression was the decline of america's middle class what are we going to do about that on this podcast I am trying to assemble an agenda for the middle class. Uh, I've interviewed a number of folks, David Otter and Dorana Saboglu, both from MIT, Danny Roderick at Harvard's JFK School, picking their brains on what can be done. Um, and I interviewed Brad DeLong specifically to get his view on what is the macroeconomic context for the ideas that those three folks came up with. And I think Brad nailed that pretty well. Um, his, his observation, um, phrased in the way that an economic scholar would reread chapter 24 of Keynes magnum opus, um, was that all of the economic issues that we face and all of the economic projects which can solve those issues are enhanced, are better off if we have a full employment economy. Turn that around, absent a full employment economy, what the heck can you really do? What project that seems promising will truly lift off if the whole overall economic situation is one in which full employment simply has not been obtained? Those are very simple points, and those are magisterial points that put a context to everything else. My thanks to Brad DeLong for joining me in conversation, and to my producer, Anna Kumu, for her excellent work. Coming up will be conversations with Joan Williams, who's the author of White Working Class, 
and with Lynn Vavrick, who guided an extraordinary 500,000 interview survey of our political convictions to achieve an unprecedented level of detail. I'm looking forward to those conversations, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on The Political Conversation.